With celebrity comes great responsibility. The pressure is enough to make anyone crack. Maintaining focus on what's real and what matters is paramount. Mental health and the culinary industry is now a necessary talking point. And mentoring the next generation is of equal importance, so egos don't run amok while foundational skills fall by the wayside. Chefs knock out exhaustive daily prep lists, maximize slim margins, and somehow still manage to find time to express creative passion via the craft they've devoted their lives to. Up next, three notable spring chefs give the lay of today's landscape, pitfalls and all, and tell us how you, the dining public, can help. This is State of Plate. Thanks to State of Plate's underwriters, the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective, Downtown Colorado Springs, and the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance. This is episode four, State of Plate. I'm your host, Matthew Schnipper, food and drink editor and food critic at the Colorado Springs Independent. In our first episode, we heard from two Springs natives who've gone off to big culinary adventures and are back with a big opinion on our scene from the outside. Episode two, we talked to some of those old guard chefs uh, about the history of culinary in the Springs and what they were doing 20 years ago. In our last episode, we heard from some new guard members and talked about the future, where we want our scene to go. And today I want to come back to where we are now, the present, and talk with another batch of chefs and still comment on our core questions about where are we, where do we want to go, and uh, what does the Springs food scene need. Uh, today my guests are Eric Brenner, chef and owner of Red Gravy. We also have Brother Luck, chef owner of Four by Brother Luck and Lucky Dumpling, and Noah Siebenhaller, who just recently left the corporate chef position at Choice Restaurant Concepts to take the executive chef position at Cheyenne Mountain Resort. And you may also know him from his years at Phantom Canyon and Beast and Brews. Thanks, guys, for joining us. And we have Eric remote, by the way. If there's any audio difference, that's what it is. Noah, do you want to start by introducing yourself? Sure. Um, Grew up in Montana and moved to Colorado Springs. I've been here for a total of about 10 years now. Went to Wyoming for a short time and absolutely hated it. Second I crossed the border, I wanted to come back and always loved the food scene down here. So came back to contribute what I could, and here I am. Cool. Brother? Yeah. Brother Luck. 2006 was my first day here. So, you know, I've been able to be a part of kind of a transitional period and, and, and watch the city grow and, you know, come back from Chicago after a short stint and decide to start a business. So it's amazing. And your first post in the Springs is now Noah's new post at Shy Mountain Resort. Was that right? Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Right. Full circle. Yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful property. And then tell us, uh, you bounced to Chicago, you came back, and then is that when you opened Street Eats? What's the next thing that the public would remember you doing here? Yeah, I left for about three years. Um, I went to Chicago for two of those. I went to San Antonio for a year to run a property down there. Came back, ran the Craftwood. Uh, so I was exec chef of the Craftwood out in Manitou for uh, almost a year. Made that transition, uh, kind of saw the writing on the wall there. And, uh, yeah, started started uh, hustling out the back of the Triple Nickel. Right. Which uh, I remember telling you the day I was going to do that, and you go, you're leaving the Craftwood to go to the Triple Nickel. <laughs> <laughs> Turned so, out to be a wise move. I was wrong. <laughs> I mean, but, yeah. Um, yeah, that led to Street Eats. That led to Four. That led to Lucky. That led to Studio. And... I don't know. It's just it's a crazy ride. Okay. And we're going to get to everything else that led to in a little bit. Eric, let's jump in with you real quick to tell us more about yourself. Yeah. So I uh, have lived in St. Louis uh, my, most of my entire life. Grew up, you know, traditional kitchens, working in country clubs, hotels, uh, ACF certifications, all that type stuff. I wanted to learn how to be a restaurant tour. So I committed to one restaurant a year for about five years. I uh, just worked one year beginning, to, you know, beginning opening saw it hit fruition and then uh, found a new place. I opened my own place in 2004 in St. Louis, 2008 hit, wiped all that out. And then I just started consulting, traveling all over the country for about, just about 10 years, I think. Um, Just traveling and and kind of getting out there and seeing new markets and seeing what I could do to bring to the market. Um, Probably the biggest thing I did was I did a gluten-free, dairy-free frozen pizza that hit grocery stores. So I was out kind of hustling at Whole Foods all over the country. And in that process, I remembered Colorado Springs is one of my favorite places. I worked in Colorado in 2011, working for a casino company, just transitioning some of their properties offerings. Um, And I moved here in 2015, found Red Gravy about six months later. So I opened pretty quickly. 2016, uh, we opened January 1 and we've been 
killing it ever since now, coming up on seven years. Cool. And then for anyone who may not have been for, for no good reason, tell us about Red Gravy real quick. What do you do there? Uh, Red Gravy is an Italian restaurant. Um, I, I, it, it's not necessarily like an authentic Italian restaurant. We're doing like an Italian immigrant restaurant. So Italian immigrants came over, created food that's not necessarily authentic, but people in America, and especially in this market, would never think of an Italian restaurant with like an Alfredo, which is not something you'd see on an Italian menu. So we are an Italian restaurant for people who like Italian food. Okay. And then, brother, real quick, for anyone who doesn't know Lucky Dumpling or Four, what do you guys do there? Yeah, Four is, a, is our signature restaurant. It's a, it's a four-course concept based on the story of living here in the Four Corners, inspired by seasons, inspired by uh, our hunters, our farmers, our fishermen, our, our gatherers. It's a fun concept that allows us to explore tasting menus in an approachable way. But then we have Lucky Dumpling, a combination of myself growing up in San Francisco, traveling through Japan, staging, being in uh, China, um, finding all this amazing inspiration, but being locked into the confines of traditional. And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're a foreigner in other countries, you don't have a say-so on the cuisine. So I found myself in some of these wet markets imagining ideas that went against the grain. And I think when you get the opportunity to open a concept and it's your dollars. You can do what you want. So, yeah, um, yeah that's lucky. Is uh, just a just a fun concept. Hip hop, dumplings, kung fu. Cool. And do you want to give a shout out to your chefs, your sous chefs there? Who's who's, who's running the day to day? Because you do a lot of other work outside of that. Sort of, you're like a chef restaurant to a proprietor in a way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so Lucky Dumpling uh, is ran by uh, Chef Jen McCausland. She's a uh, she's a young chef out of Canada. Super passionate. Uh, really really proud of it. What she's doing over there right now. Uh, and then Ashley Brown is our chef over at Four. So is our chef de cuisine is running both restaurants. Okay. Ashley is a, uh, she's been here for a while. Um, you know, one of my favorite things about Ashley is back when I was starting pop-up dinners in 2013, she was attending them just to pick my brain. So, <laughs> you know, her 10 years at the zoo with, with Bo Green transitioned into uh, eventually a position with me. And, you know, she came on as a Sioux and now she's the, she's the CDC. And Noah, you are... Of the group today, you're the one who's not a chef owner. You're a chef working for other owners. Yep. Um, and I know you're just coming into this new position, but um, is it too early to say uh, what you have in mind in terms of what you want to bring to your new post? I'd love to bring it back to its glory days, back when uh, brother was there, um, when Bo was there. Uh, you know, it's kind of gotten away. They've been without a, a good leader for the last couple of years, it seems like, and mm -hmm. food has kind of um, gone by the wayside. There's got to be something different for cooking for hotels and resorts than the, the, the your own like brick and mortar, right? There's something different about the, the culture, is. the volume, everything. Yeah, what, yeah. What's the key to it? What what makes those kind of things tick? I started in uh, catering and banquets with my culinary career and did that for a number of years before I got into the restaurants. And they're completely different worlds. Um, the nice thing about the CMR property is there's a, a good mix of banquets and restaurants. Um, but the banquet side of it, it's it's mass volume all at once. Um, you know, buffets, you, you're trying to produce the highest quality, best food that you can that's going to sit on a buffet for an hour to uh, three hours and, and still it needs to be as, as good as it was at hour three, as it was at hour one. Kind of want to jump in with some pandemic questions now, because that was something I probably talked to each of you at least at some point during that. And you were all very active in your own ways. And Eric, I want to start with you because uh, something really big came out of that for you. Um, you were a big vocal presence uh, on the downtown scene and you really jumped in, reshaped your restaurant particularly because you started Meals to Heal, which, you know, was feeding healthcare workers and doing something really good for the community while your own restaurant and everyone else around you and your industry was struggling. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like what gave you the impetus to start that and, and what's happening now with it? Well, I think it's apropos that I'm, you know, I'm not in the studio with you guys because I tested positive. So, um, it, you know, it's still here and it's still uh, present. Uh, it still kind of hits our industry in these little spurts where, you know, uh, you, you expect to be out two, three people at a time and an already crushed labor market, you know, so it's a, it's a challenge. Uh, but right away in the pandemic, the CEO of the casino company I worked for, her name is Virginia McDowell, and she's just an amazing person. They sold the company. Part of the job that I had there was to kind of elevate the offerings they had in their food service so that they could, you know, eventually sell the whole company. So it was a billion dollar publicly traded company. Um, 
right when the pandemic hit, I, I think I put out a Facebook post because I had survived 2000. Well, I didn't survive 2008. I lost my restaurant and my home in 2008, 2010. Those were two really rough years. So when the pandemic hit, I had this fire. Uh, I, I just posted on Facebook, just uh, telling everyone I knew that were restaurateurs, just hang in there, don't give up. You know, like uh, I wish I hadn't given up in 2008. I wish I would have fought a little harder. Virginia saw my post, called me, and we just got to talking about what, what we could do to help people. So we came up with the idea of Meals to Heal, which was a very simple concept of if you don't know how to give right now during the pandemic, any restaurant could start a GoFundMe. That restaurant could then take those dollars, uh, save jobs, give people things to do, work, uh, and then create meals for hospital workers. It could be a fire department, wherever you wanted to get the meals to. We were delivering, you know, down to the army base COVID center. We were uh, delivering all over the city. And it was an amazing connection to the community that uh, I think I was looking for. When I first moved here, you know, is in any market, you're learning the market, you're trying to figure out what people want, what they need, what the market will sustain and support. But this was a definite way for me to connect with everyone and um, really show that I wanted to be part of the community and not just an interloper. And then, you know, when the pandemic opened up, restaurants were open. But I should say before that time, we worked really hard on getting the streets closed so that we could sit outside, getting parklets built so that we could uh, extend our outdoor seating and just uh, really trying to find a way to help our restaurant community, especially the downtown corridor. It's critical for the independent restaurants that are down there to survive all the chains that are out there and surrounding us. Yeah. So once it opened up, the GoFundMe dried up and I didn't want to give up. So I started the Chef Dinner Series. It's called our Sunday Supper Club. And we charge $100 a person. We, I do food, wine, education. These people sit around a bar. So I'm actually behind the bar with you know 12 to 16 people. And we're just talking through the dishes I'm doing. They can ask questions where to buy the product. I give out recipes. I just connect with people in this really great way. And then... um all of those proceeds go to provide meals. So we're still doing meals. I'd say uh, the pandemic still hits us. Uh, like I said, just this ongoing loss of labor every now and then that kind of creeps up and, and kind of gets you, you know? I love it that you, you bring people in your kitchen like that and, and engage. And that's something Brother does too. What's meaningful about that for you guys? I think the, the biggest part is dropping the veil, right? We want to be approachable. We want to be humanized. Uh, we want to connect with the diner on a different level. To where we can truly explain not only what we were thinking, how we executed, and and reinforce the the commitment to what we do. And for me, that's always been a big part of the experience is the theater. And I think from from running resorts, and those are those are tons of action stations and things that are very interactive, to you know setting up the triple nickel, which was was an open bar concept, um, sitting at a counter. Street Eats, we had, you know, pop-up dinners in the back of an office. Four was uh, originally started with a chef's table in the kitchen. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, we we pulled that. So uh, it forced us to kind of think outside the box, what could we do, which is why we created the studio. So okay. the studio is perfect because it's a very intimate space with a seating of 24, but it's got a live kitchen. It's got a full bar. It's got a restroom. It's got a dish area and it's above Lucky Dumpling. So um, we've actually moved a lot of our personal experiences to that to that space because we can control that element a lot more mm-hmm. without interrupting the the consistency of what the restaurants need to be because okay. the mass diner is not looking for that experience. They, they want to come in, they want to eat, they want to celebrate, they want to move on. There's a very small percent that wants that, you know, I want to hang out with the chef. And tell me about the pandemic for, from your point of view for both restaurants or everything that was going on in your career. That's one of the hardest things to experience, right? We, I think in the last 20 years, right, we went through 9-11, we went through 2008 and, you know, you transition right into to the pandemic and the shutdown and uh, nobody had a game plan. It's kind of like, you know, Mike Tyson saying, you got a plan until you get smacked in the mouth. Uh, that's exactly what happened. We all got punched in the mouth and uh, that plan went out the door. And I think as an owner, when you looked at the payables and you looked at the payroll and it's your bank account and you've got to make this happen, you're at a loss for words because you've just had to close your doors and tell, you know, however many team members, I don't know what to do. I, I have no plan. This is this is something we didn't do. You know, I can understand if I, I screwed it up, but like to just have it snatched away in a heartbeat, that was surreal. And uh, you know, the mindset transitions immediately to okay, what can I do? How do I figure this out? You know, as chefs, we're all problem solvers. 
So that that's what sparked um, a lot of, of, of initiative of, you know, not only serve the community, but also take care of our team and their families, right? Because mm-hmm. when we hire a person, we hire their family. And I think that's a, a commitment that we have to constantly remember. Four made no sense for curbside. So we had to get creative. And that's what interactive cooking classes and cooking kits turned into. We were doing so many cooking kits and building so much mise en place for um, those kits and those online classes that that kept my staff working. It kept revenue coming in the door. And it was crazy the volume we were doing. But it also connected us to the community because we dropped a, a certain level of, of uh, approachability when it came to people cooking in, in my home with my wife. It's insane what, what we did. But, I mean, during the pandemic, I expanded three times. It's amazing. It, it's crazy to say that now. And I was extremely fearful when, when we were making these decisions. But it was all out of necessity. We needed more hours for our staff. We needed outdoor dining. So, you know, we built that patio and we did it in partnership with groups like HBA Cares. Being able to take over the triple nickel when they moved out, we took over that bar. When A64 closed, we took over upstairs. So it's just, it's surreal what actually transpired out of it. But that pause button was actually, I think, one of the greatest things for a lot of us. It got me to stop jumping on planes every weekend um, (laughs) and reconnect with just reality. Noah, what did you see? I think you were at Beast and Brews at the time. Yeah, so we were, just like everybody else, um, completely shut down. It was myself, my kitchen manager, and a front of house service manager. Ran the restaurant six days a week for to-goes. We tried to do anything that we could to get staff hours and keep the doors open, keep the revenue coming in. So we started a lot of uh, uh, basically grocery items out of the butcher shop area. As much meat as we could possibly sell, kept fresh meat coming in, which was hard to get at times. You know, just the grocery stores were empty, suppliers were empty. You know, a lot of our suppliers actually opened up their doors to the public because they couldn't get stuff anywhere else, which made it even more difficult for us to get at times too. But I mean, hell, there was times where we were selling toilet paper out of the restaurant because people couldn't get toilet paper, but we we were able to. Mm-hmm. We'll continue the conversation in a minute. But first, a big thanks to the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective for supporting this podcast. Together, as one brilliant community, we can respect and transform the beloved City Auditorium, one of the first all-purpose utilitarian facilities in the state, and the first-of-its-kind creative catalyst for all citizens of Colorado Springs. I have to say I'm personally pretty excited about this. Learn more about how to get involved with this community investment in education, arts, culture, and business at communityculturalcollective.org. I'm going to jump over to something Brother's been a, a leader on, really, is the mental health awareness. You just put out this new book, No Luck's Given, right? I think um, many people struggle with their mental health, and, and a lot of it is locked away. A lot of it is ignored. A lot of it is something that we don't want to touch. We don't want to broach the subject. Um, you know, for me, I had a, a really crazy experience of things that triggered PTSD and, and, and anxiety, and it, it sent me spiraling. And, and I realized throughout that process, those awakening moments that I'm not alone. And I think it's very important for us to change culture, uh, especially in the hospitality industry, because we have a broken system. We have the system of numb yourself until the next shift. And that doesn't work. We've all lost friends that, you know, couldn't, couldn't make it to that next shift. We've all had friends that checked out. We all have friends that, you know, are, are currently dealing with addiction or, or dealing with their demons. And I, I want to see change. And I think we have to spark that. We have to, we have to speak up on something that's uncomfortable and, and change mindset. It's, it's not necessarily I'm going to get you to stop doing what you're doing, but I just want to at least have you acknowledge the conversation. You know, we recently had, um, during Sober Week, uh, it sparked us hiring a therapist for our staff. And every Friday, they had the ability for three hours to talk with a therapist and book it. Sadly, a lot of them didn't take advantage of it. They're not ready to, right? Mm-hmm. You can't force it, but at least the conversation is there to where we're starting to see people engage in, you know, recognizing that, hey, I might be dealing with something too. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it comes from my own vulnerability, right? I'm, I'm going to share my story. And if it hits you, man, I hope it helps. But if not, I'm not forcing anything on you. For anyone who doesn't know, Brothers, the 
our local chef who's gone the farthest in terms of TV culture, basically, which put the springs on the map in a big way that no one else has. Top Chef, season 15 and 16, brother went on and did beat Bobby Flay, which is huge. He was on the final round and chopped in 2016. He's been a James Beard Best Chef semifinalist for the mountain region here. Huge accomplishments, which, am I correct, too, that a lot of that is what fueled some of that PTSD you're interaction with that high level of celebrity. You know, I I think I've been chasing validation my whole life. And it it stems from early in my life. It begins heavily as a young teenager getting into culinary arts. I didn't want to become a chef until I had a chef tell me I was good at cooking. And I believed him. And I became so thirsty for that attention that I kept performing to get that next level of recognition. And that transpired into my career, right? From the bosses to the customers to my coworkers, it was all about validation. You know, as, as you pursue that career and you, you want to accomplish things, then it's the recognition of the media, the recognition of your community. And then eventually it became the, the worst, which was chasing the media for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and going into television, um, and I'm sure Eric can attest to this because I know he's done some television as well, it's... It's not real. And I I think that's the one thing that a lot of these young chefs don't realize is that these TV shows are there to use you. They're there to make money off of you, to be the entertainment, while they collect the sponsorship and the advertising and the marketing. There's no dollars coming to me for doing Top Chef. There's no dollars going to him for doing Guy's Grocery Games. If you win, you might get a prize that's taxed. It's It's such a broken system as well that... You know, we chase this validation when you realize I never needed your validation. I was already good enough. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, you know, I had this chip on my shoulder when I when I came back to Colorado Springs that we didn't get any recognition. And when you look at the the pioneers, the 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 Jay Gus, the the Brent Beavers, you know, the James Africano, like these guys did amazing things in this community when I got here. Right? And I got here in 06. I was so blown away by what they were doing, but they weren't getting the recognition. Mm -hmm. And it was almost a level of disrespect when it came from like Denver. It was like, no, absolutely not. You guys aren't welcome. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was one of those thought processes of not only do I want to be known here locally, but I'm going to be recognized nationally to where Denver has to accept me. And that's, that's what sparked all that, right? It was that chip. And, and now we have those invites. Now we're having those conversations with Food & Wine. Now we're having those conversations with James Beard. They're paying attention to our city. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so much more than just the Broadmoor now. Yeah. You know, we should be able to compete on a local level as small independent business owners or, or local chefs to, to, to compete in these categories. And, I mean, this is a big city. It's not a small town. Yeah. And I want to give Eric and Noah an opportunity to jump in. It's so great to hear this stuff. And I've been doing this a little over 30 years. And I think the pandemic really forced all of us too to like, look at, you know, why do we do this? And why do we do that? And, uh, you know, Danny Meyer calls it turning over every rock, you know, looking at every opportunity to change. And, you know, we don't charge our employees for meals anymore. You know, we stopped in the pandemic and they eat that, you know, they work for us. Why can't we feed them? It's crazy. That was just, you know, these things that are in our system of running restaurants, the profit margin, how do you operate? We had to look at everything. And I think when we did that, I for sure was one that was like, I've never liked this. I'm not doing it anymore. I changed things up. I found new ways to operate. I'm an optimist. We know what we're doing. We're, you know, successful restaurateurs, successful businessmen, chefs, leaders. I think we all want to see a scene here. I got to say, I moved here because... I thought like everything was just a click above mediocre. I don't want to say everybody, you know, but I think everybody agrees with this. James and Brent and, and, and Jay were saying kind of the similar thing. There's opportunity to do great things. I think the, the challenge is how do you get there? To me, I don't think a scene is going to happen from the Broadmoor out. It's not going to be a fine dining situation. To me, it's going to be an authenticity deal where let's say, you know, tie and it's like authentic and perfect and great. And all these little uh, places throughout the city can create a scene. So if there's people that are passionate, and I think what brother and I do also agree on is that, you know, we are creating culinarians. You're not just working for me. I'm going to train you. I'm going to teach you. And if you do leave my space, you're going to go out and tell the other chef, hey, I learned this from, at, at Red Gravy from Chef Eric. And we're going to impart skills and we're going to let that that next generation go out into the community and create their own little 
spots. I'm very excited about the city because I think we're going to start seeing chefs that are going to go the extra step. Businesses that maybe, you know, mediocre is safe, right? And, and if people are okay with mediocre, then why stick your neck out if, if you can survive really, really well and not try too hard, right? So it has to be a revolution of people that want it, that want to, want to make an impact, maybe want to get some validation. But it's a long process. I think everybody at this table understands that you don't just open a restaurant, man. You know, you can't just be a good cook and go open a restaurant. You can't just be a good baker and go open a bakery. You got to learn how to manage people. You got to learn how to work the business. You got to learn how to advertise. The TV element of this, again, brother is right on. You know, I knew going into TV that I'm on TV. Nobody can taste my food. Nobody can smell what I'm doing. You know, <laughs> I'm selling myself and my story. I knew I had a microphone on me through the whole thing. There was a producer with me the whole time. I was just pitching stories, man. You know, I was just trying this and trying this and trying this. And finally, they found an angle that they liked. And then there's like three producers in the room with me. And now they're all grilling me on, tell us more about this and tell us more about that. So what, what I try to do is use media just to make an impact. I think the city does have um, an inferiority complex with, with Denver. Uh, I'm from St. Louis. We had it with Chicago. Uh, when I worked in Manhattan, you know, as a consultant to restaurants, that's when I really got comfortable because I was like, hey, man, I know what I'm doing. And it doesn't matter where I'm at, if I'm in Manhattan or in Colorado or wherever I'm at, anywhere. If you know what you're doing, you get the sense of, of confidence that you can then instill in other people and then send them out into the world to do what they do. But I think the city is going to have a culinary awakening. I think it's long overdue. But I think it's going to happen from chefs training other chefs, mixologists training other mixologists. I'd love to see more wine culture in this city where people understand wine and they teach wine. I think it's important to jump in, though, because I, I disagree with that. I think the city has had a culture. I think the city has a culture and it's it's very evident, but it's below the surface. I think when you look at the diversity in, in this city from the amount of military that we have here and the hospitality industry and the medical industry and the educational sectors and the church sectors, there is so much diversity in culture. And, and, and to me, Colorado Springs is not about it's not about the new American restaurant. It's not about the celebrity chef or the fine dining experience. It's about it's about the the immigrants who are here. I mean, look at our Jamaican culture here, right? The Broadmoor and Cheyenne Mountain brought tons and tons of Jamaican workers to come every summer. And a lot of them stayed. And we have some amazing Jamaican food because of it. And I ate at a Korean restaurant the other day up on Briargate. It was phenomenal. And it's like, it's so authentic and legit to me. It's, it's those restaurants. I mean, we've had so many great small concepts that some of them don't make it, but it's like, those are the restaurants of this city that are just the best. Yeah. And those are the restaurants that are going to change the culture. That's kind of my point is that authenticity. And then the, the, the challenge is going to be, how does this community support? How do we get the word out that those places are out there, that they're worth checking out? that they're important to the community. I want to give Noah a chance to comment on the mental health aspect real quick. Yeah. Um, you know, mental health since the beginning of the pandemic has been more evident in, in every area of our, our industry than ever before. And I've had more staff call out and deal with it than I've ever experienced in my entire career. I spent 18 years in the, the Army National Guard and Reserves, and I didn't even deal with it on this level when I was in the military. It's been really awakening and, and honestly, for me, hard to deal with to see my staff and, and peers and coworkers go through what, the, what they've been going through, what they've been experiencing. I have one individual who she's worked with me for, for years since Beast and Bruise days, and she had mental health issues back then. But recently, you know, about oh, three, four months ago, she just she hit a wall where she couldn't function every day in life. And I ended up doing dinner service by myself because I had to send her home and to take care of herself. And we haven't seen her since. Hmm. I mean, I've personally gone to her house to check on her multiple times. Um, she hasn't left her apartment. She suffers from agoraphobia. Wow. And, you know, there's a lot of people in our kitchens and in our dining rooms and behind our bars that suffer from this on a daily basis. And I think that's a big area of lacking within our industry as a whole. You know, the, the resources might be there, 
but our staff doesn't know how to take advantage of them or they're afraid to take advantage of them mm -hmm. just because they're afraid of the stigma that it's going to come with it. You mentioned your military service. Is there any overlap there with PTSD with soldiers and, and people leaving the military that are going into the culinary industry? Oh, absolutely. When I went to culinary school, um, I started a little bit later in life. I, I started out in the Army National Guard and Reserve, and I had a, a long career in real estate before I decided I want to become a chef. But traveling the world with the military is kind of what really pushed me to get into our industry and, and really um, pursue being a chef. But while I was in culinary school in Denver, I mean, half of my class was prior service Army, Air Force, Navy, hmm. Marines, and a lot of a lot of people do have PTSD. I spent 18 months in the middle of Baghdad at the beginning of the war. Thankfully, I, I don't suffer from it. There was a point in my life and my, my career where I thought I did, and I sought help for it. And talking with Victor Matthews, Paragon Culinary School also has a lot of um, ex-military comes to do um, culinary training there. And we have a lot of service members or ex-service members in our kitchens, to your knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, I think there's a, a misconception on what PTSD or who it applies to. Because when I, when I sat in a therapist's office and, and, and was diagnosed with PTSD, my first response is I wasn't in the military. Hmm. The neglect, the abuse, the violence, the things we experience, the, the, the traumas, right? The harassment, the, all the things of, of our culture, whether it's in restaurants or it's, or it's in your neighborhoods, can trigger some type of form of, of, of PTSD. So there's things that are going to spark it that most people don't realize. You know, this was a traumatic experience I went through. Now I have, I have moments where I'm, I'm nervous when I'm in these situations. It's, it's more than just war. The violence that we see in our neighborhoods, right, on the, on the southeast side, yeah. It, it happens. Like, this is real. And, and this is what's affecting our people uh, more than just overseas. Uh, but we do see tons of service members in our kitchens. I mean, it's the brigade is the brigade. It's comfortable. Um, it's an easy transition. I mean, Noah and I have worked with, with tons of 10th Group and, and Special Forces. You know, we have the Bridge the Gap program where these soldiers have left the dining facilities and actually come into our restaurants and spent 45 days and, you know, just to make them better leaders and understand the, the industry that they're in so they can step back into the dining facilities and step up. But, I mean, I, I, I've got a young soldier just joined us a week ago, and, you know, he's like, I've done every job. I've been a mailman. I've, I've been in the military. And he goes, I just want to cook. I love cooking. And for, for a lot of them, it's, it's, it's comforting. Yep. There's something about our industry that attracts people who, who don't quite uh, feel that they fit in the, the, the nine to five world. I embrace that. It's an opportunity to give people some skills. I also think it's an opportunity to build, uh, you know, huge amounts of, of confidence in people that, they, that they're a good, you know, just reinforcement every day. I came up in kitchens where I was hit. I had shit thrown at me, right? I had constant abusive, you know, conversations where you're just beat down. Um, it's that style of you break somebody down, build them up the way you want them. Uh, I think that's gone in our industry. I, I, thankfully, it's one of the things I think that has gone away. Uh, you know, a pat on the back goes much further. And I literally wake up every day and try to remind myself, you're going to connect with people, make it a positive connection, tell people they're doing great, tell them how important they are, tell them how much they mean to you, how much they mean to others. If you can do that on a daily basis, you create this culture that uh, supports people. We hire a lot of people from the mission and try to build people. I have people that have been with me for years that were homeless when I first hired them. And now they're in their own homes, driving cars. And that is a great feeling that you get uh, when you can take someone out of that situation, understand where they're at, and then help build their life with them and then send them out into the world. You know, we still see people, like Noah said, that you miss, that they fall through the cracks, you can't help. There's no way for you to connect with them. Um, and that's that's an ongoing challenge. But I, I think in our industry, we, we, we become somewhat of therapists. We learn to take people that are maybe a little bit broken and, and just give them a, a sense of pride in what they do and, and a livelihood. And I love it. You know, I really do. I think it's the one thing about this career that I cherish and, and I'm thankful for every day that you can affect people's lives. Yeah. Right? And yeah. We, we, we've got to continue to, to tap the resources that are being provided to us. 
I think when we talk about us as leaders, us as, as counselors, us as therapists, at the end of the day, we aren't properly trained in how to handle a lot of these situations. So when you see organizations like Chow come into the market, we host a Chow meeting every Tuesday above Lucky Dumpling in the studio. Tell people what Chow is in case yeah, they don't so, know. So Chow is Colorado Hospitality Outreach and Wellness. And it's essentially, it's an hour session of hey, we're going to talk about what's going on in our industry, and it's open to anyone, bartender, server, cook, dishwasher, chef, owner, whoever. This is a safe zone. Um, They have tons of resources throughout the state. It was started by a gentleman who cleaned up his life, uh, decided to go sober. They told him to go find someone to to sponsor, and he created a group that is now across the, the state doing amazing things. And then you have groups like Not 9 to 5 out of Canada, and they're, they're creating actual training manuals for hospitality leaders It's a partnership with therapists. So it's a book that gives you the ability to recognize the, the signs and ways to approach it and different ideas on how to resolve some of the things that we're seeing more and more. Patrick Mulvaney out of Sacramento with a, the I Got Your Back project is amazing. Like his staff, when they clock in, they actually have to drop a coin to, to give the temperature of how they're feeling. So that can be a subject at, at lineup. He's created all of these ambassadors in the city to prevent suicide. So there's a hotline and there's someone who's always going to answer. And then there's people who wear these pins that say, I got your back. Those are the ones that you can actually talk to because they've received some training. So I think that's an important part of, of what we're seeing in our industry right now. It's a holistic thing we're talking about. You know, Eric, when you say you get here and it was sort of a mediocre scene, we heard that from James in last episode, there's this passion to make it better and to be striving, which can lead down the wrong road if we put too much ego into it, if we put too much pressure on ourselves, if it breaks us down. So we not only do we have to focus on those little things like incredible service and good ingredients and good food, you guys are now talking behind the scenes, focusing on your own staff, your own mental health and well-being. It has to happen holistically for us to move forward. We can't just have you know, amazing food or good ingredients, but then terrible abusive kitchens. It's not going to work. So many of us have have cooked all over the world. We've, We've cooked with the best of the best. We've been able to experience amazing things in our career. And you're chasing your career, right? You're, you're trying to not only seek the validation, but also build your experience. At some point, it no longer becomes about you. And I think that's where, when I look at my city, And being a part of Colorado Springs, it has nothing to do with my ego anymore. It's about the people that I'm helping, the the organizations that I'm supporting, the, the ability to restore my community as a restaurant. That's a completely different perspective versus like, I need to go to Chicago, I need to go to New York, and I've got to go work for the best restaurant in the world. Eventually, you're going to come back to a place like Colorado Springs and go... I don't need to be in New York or Chicago to cook this kind of food. And I can make a huge difference in my community. When I go cook with all these amazing chefs and I can hang, I know I can hang. It's not a question anymore. It's not about me. I have to come back and teach a 16-year-old how to cook. I have to come back and teach a 19-year-old how to cook. I need to teach someone who's coming straight off the streets that wants to build a food truck how to cook and operate a business. There's an investment into a community now. And I think that's where a lot of us are starting to realize um, here locally that it, it has nothing to do with ego anymore. I would agree with that 100%. People understand now that it's about the people. There's this old saying of like, you know, people, product, and process. And those are like the three P's of success. People is always in the front. I've talked to many people that say that they put their employees first, but, you know, they put profit first. And, and if they're being honest, when you put your people first and you take care of your people, you, you, you learn that uh, they take care of the business, right? And then the business takes care of you. And in that is who are they taking care of? They're taking care of the guest. Our top seller across the board every day is fettuccine Alfredo. I didn't want to put it on the menu. I wanted to have more authentic food. Fettuccine Alfredo is everybody's favorite. You have to be okay with that. You got to get out of the way, not let your ego into that and just say, okay, I'm going to make the best fettuccine Alfredo that I can make. And then I'm going to teach my people how to do it the same way every single time, hundreds of times over and over. And they still have to find a little bit of passion in what they're doing to say, this is going to be the best Alfredo we can make. Then hopefully we can get people to try a carbonara, maybe an American version of carbonara, but with pancetta and cream, you know, and, and, and Colorado peas. It seems like peas has to go in a, a carbonara. I've been scolded about that many times. Um, but then, you know, what we're trying to do now is we're saying, okay, we'll try a cachao pepe with guanciale and an egg yolk on top. Like that is an authentic carbonara that you might get in Rome. So my point in that is that I believe you cook for people, not at people. 
So if you open a restaurant and you say, I'm great, here's my food, that may be true, but if you don't connect with people in a real way, it doesn't really matter. So what we're trying to do is, and again, with our chefs series is I cook for my heart. I don't necessarily cook Italian when I do these meals. I cook whatever I, I'm, I'm in the mood to do. And the idea is to try to get people to feel comfortable with your business. They come to us for whatever they love, whether it's lasagna or spaghetti meatballs. And, but beyond that, we can try to move them slowly into a direction of some more authentic, interesting food that is something that can get them excited that little Alfredo story is 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 what I think some businesses need to try to do more to try to elevate the culinary landscape, maybe just one dish at a time, just try to move people up a little bit. He hit on something really important, right? We're cooking for our guests. We're not cooking for ourselves. Yeah. My palate and what I want is not what I'm selling. And I think that's a hard part of learning for a lot of young chefs. I have a young 16-year-old girl right now named Maria. She wants to be an Italian chef. And I had her on a conversation the other day with myself and Chef Carrie Baird uh, up at Bardot. And her menu ideas were like, I want to do this foam and I want to do this molecular. And it's just truffles. And she's got this crazy elaborate menu. And and last night we we were doing a dinner for the Chamber of Commerce and their interns. And I, and I looked at her and I said, hey, I want you to understand the menu that we wrote tonight that we're executing for these 60 people is not about what we want. It's who the client is, right? This is a, a young group. This is a lot of 21-year-olds that don't really eat crazy food. So we have to scale back our menu for our guests. And you could see the lights coming on where she's like, oh, I get it. So I think when we're explaining this to a lot of our young staff, like they have to understand like... It's not about you, right? You're selling a product and your customer needs to want to buy that product. So you've got to, you've got to make it approachable. Yeah. yeah. I, I know when I got to Beast and Brews the first time, though, I was a really big fan of that knuckle sandwich you made. Yeah. And that's something I think that would be a good example of a, um, a lot of people are going to go in there and like, knuckle, I'm not, I'm not ordering beef knuckle. I don't know what that is, right? And they're just going to order a steak or a burger or some fries. You know, it goes back to as young chefs, a lot of us want to educate the community and hmm. the community educates us. You hear many stories like salmon should be medium, medium rare. The general public doesn't want their salmon to be medium rare. Might want their steak to be medium rare, but not their salmon or their pork. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a lot harder to educate the community about how the food should be in our minds and a lot easier for us to accept, just like they're saying, we're cooking for them. We're not cooking for us. Yeah. It, it's not about what we like. I mean, I hate mushrooms. Blueberries too. You know, the, the you knuckle put that sandwich. On the sandwich. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The way that came about is I wanted a knuckle sandwich on the menu and I had a horseradish cream on it. And my girlfriend's, uh, he was five at the time. His favorite food on the planet is blueberries. I hate them. I will not eat blueberries whatsoever. And asked him one day, I said, you want a knuckle sandwich? And he says, only if there's blueberries on it. Like, all right, so we're going to have a blueberry horseradish on this knuckle sandwich. And that's how it became the Dominic knuckle sandwich. It's great. It's what he wanted to eat, not what I wanted to eat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of times, too, your guests can give you, like, great ideas. I'll just give one quick example. In, in my career, I've done a lot of different cuisines, but Italian and French are my two stalwarts. And one guy was eating a Caesar salad. He's like, you know, he goes, man, I love your calamari and I love your Caesar. And it just clicked in my head, like, you know, calamari could be the crouton. They go well. There's seafood. There's anchovy backing that up. Like these two could go well together. By listening to my guests, I created a dish that became one of my signature things. In order to hear people, you have to be open to listening. I'm a talker. And one of my mentors said, Eric, you never learn anything when your mouth's moving. And I started to realize that, you know, listening is a skill that you you have to work on and develop. And that, that means listening to your staff, listening to your guests listening to other chefs in the industry that are doing things and and being open to like, hey, you know, I could do better. I can do better for my guests. I can do better for my staff. I can do better for my business. If I'm just open to learning, I think everybody at this table would agree. You learn constantly. You only might learn a fried chicken recipe from a dishwasher (laughs) that just got out of prison. What I've seen over the years in, in Colorado Springs has been you've had not only chefs like ourselves who've come into this market, but bigger groups that have come into this market and elevated the training of, of what it could be. When you look at the original Till and the culinary team that they brought here and the service team that they brought here, it elevated our city, right? And all those workers eventually went to other places. And then you get somewhere like, 
a cowboy star and they come out of San Diego and they do the same thing. It's raising the bar. Ombly, another perfect example of a restaurant that's elevating the scene with their training, their standards. So I think it's, it's not necessarily about what you can do. All of us can cook. All of us have experiences. But at the end of the day, it has to be based on the, the most inexperienced person in the kitchen. That's the level of your restaurant. And when we think about the current state of our, our city and, and trends and all these things, it still has to come back down to the youngest person in the kitchen, the most inexperienced person in the kitchen is the one we got to train the most because that's the level of our standard right now. I'm glad you mentioned um, the original Till, what Mitch Yellen's brought to town. Even now with Vine and Wheel, you guys mentioned wine culture when to come up. He's definitely trying to bring wine culture up. We'll continue the conversation in a minute. But first, I'd like to thank these underwriters for making this podcast possible. Downtown Colorado Springs, home of the largest concentration of independent restaurants in Southern Colorado, is proud to sponsor State of Plate and support the passionate individuals who make the food and beverage industry a cultural highlight in our lives. And the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance. Good beer requires good water, and lots of it. That's why the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance brings together water resource experts and brewing industry professionals to spark conversations about protecting our watershed. Visit fountain-crk.org to find a liquid lecture at your favorite local brewery. Before we time out, I do want to jump to a topic. Eric, you're going to kick this one off. Uh, you said you recently dropped Grubhub. You, you're working out the key to, is it self-delivery? Are you there yet? So, uh... The pandemic forced us, as Brother said, to find new initiatives, to be creative. We used Grubhub since we opened. You know, when I lived in Manhattan, Grubhub was a thing. When I found out it was in the Springs, I, I wanted to be a part of it because it was so it's so useful in a place like New York City. Um, I thought it would help kind of push the culture here a little bit. During the pandemic, we transitioned a lot of our uh, service staff, especially like hosts and people that we couldn't find work for, into driving. So we set up our own delivery system we found an app that we could, uh, in real time, see where our drivers were in the city. We could send them uh, information through their phones. I had to learn the, the delivery business. It was something I'd never done before. We just used Grubhub at that time as a marketing tool to drive people to us. And then we constantly tried to transition people to our own online ordering and delivery. People are they're stuck on apps, man. They just go to their phone and use an app. They might be, yeah, I know it costs more, but it's so convenient. And so... You know, there's always this fight. It's like a push and pull of convenience, you know. Fast food is an example. There's fast casual. So like fast food industry came into our world of fine dining and kind of democratized. People didn't know they were sitting in a chain anymore. It felt like a regular restaurant. They did a good job at that. And it, and it pushed our industry. Okay, now we got to find a way to fit into that model somehow, you know, as fine dining is kind of brought down for the masses and everybody feels like they're entitled to fine dining and they should have it every day. We had to adapt. We kept using Grubhub. Quite honestly, we didn't have the staff to continue to try to do the delivery thing. It was very hard to manage. Again, sprawling city, right? So when they order from the north side and then the next delivery is all the way down on the south side, we had some logistical things we were trying to deal with. So when the pandemic opened, we got everybody back to work. We went back to using Grubhub as our primary delivery source. When things were good, uh, you don't necessarily look at a revenue stream like that and, and think about getting rid of it. Uh, it's a revenue stream. It's it's not profitable, but it was still, you know, blood in the veins, as, as we would say. And it's not profitable because they take a huge percent, right? Tell us the percent in case people don't know that. Yeah. So they take, they take on average a total 30% of the sale. Which is huge. It is huge. And the way that I would justify it to myself pretty much every month, because I was always looking at it as kind of a losing proposition. One is as a business owner and as a person, I want to push back against the, the gig economy I think that's where a lot of our employees have gone to. And I supported them. They wanted to drive. It was easier. They felt like they were their own boss. Now I'm starting to see that they're being not taken care of. It's not a very good relationship with drivers and the big tech companies that are powering them. Also, I found that our reputation was kind of on the line a little bit. Our food travels very well. It reheats very well. But we were noticing that you know, as, as the economy was tightening with inflation and everything, everything's kind of tightening up a little bit. We had to look at profitability and make sure that everything we're doing is smart. And we were just finding the Grubhub, you know, we were kind of missing money. There's a new tax that came out in July. You had to try to manage and figure out. So now there's more tax. There's, uh, they're not taking care of their employees. Do I really want to be a part of this economy, the gig economy? Do I really want to be a part of it? I think my goal now as a restaurateur, as a chef, 
as a business owner is to try to lead the way and, and create a path that other people can follow. So we just got rid of Grubhub after two months. Our numbers have not been affected uh, except in a positive way. Our online ordering has picked up. So people are getting in their car and driving to get their own food. So that picked up. Our profitability is up. So the big question you never know is, did people who use you for Grubhub, do they come to your restaurant and sit down and eat? Or are you just a little blip on their app that they use every day? It's a conversation I had with Noah several months ago, too. We were talking about the the virtual kitchens, the ghost kitchens, the late night stuff that was really stealing business from our our late night locals. You know, it first started at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, all the um, Facebook food groups popped up and people are talking about these restaurants I'd never even heard of. I'm like, who the hell are these restaurants and how are they opening right now while everybody else is struggling to stay alive? And started looking into it and it was basically the the major birth of our ghost kitchens or virtual brands, if you will. And it started with Chili's from what I saw. They They did a concept called it's just wings. And it was literally, it was wings and fries. That's all you could order through the apps. You couldn't walk into the restaurant and, and order what was on the apps. And then other major chains started following it. And they have the ability through Grubhub and DoorDash to turn it on and turn it off when they need it. And yeah, it kept the revenue coming in and it kept their staff employed. But at the same time, it was hurting all the small local businesses. And I, I think it still does today. I mean, you sent me an article a few months back of a restaurant somewhere in the, the country that has, what was it, like 30 different virtual brands operating out of one kitchen. And you said they weren't easy to, to, to determine. You had to like look at the address yeah. and find it on the map. And it would just be like, Mr. Beast Burger. Well, what is that? Mr. Beast Burger is the nastiest stuff on the planet. I don't know <laughs> how that guy ever made it popular. I mean, YouTube, but it's coming out of uh, On the Borders Kitchen. I've Give them two tries because I just want to see, all right, what is everybody buying into? What is everybody wanting? What are they eating? And I couldn't even finish it. I'd rather go to McDonald's and I haven't had McDonald's in 20 years. Mm -hmm. So as the consumer and Eric, to to your point, you said it was hurting your reputation because your food, yeah, it travels well and it reheats well, but who wants to pay Mm -hmm. for that convenience, having all those fees taxed on and then have to reheat the food. So yeah, are the, are those guests after they're having to reheat your food as great right. as it is? I mean, hell, we ordered your guys' restaurant many times throughout the pandemic to help support, and I didn't care if it was hot or cold. I just I I loved it. And but who's going to come back in to the restaurant after they had a poor experience, not from you, but from the app that was delivering it? And, you know, they, they, those people can go on Yelp. All of our bad reviews on Yelp are, you know, people that can't get in the door because they didn't have a reservation. Or, or you didn't have ranch dressing. Or they had a bad delivery experience, <laughs> you know. I'm telling you guys, you'll know when I've completely given in is when I do my bacon ranch Alfredo and put it on the menu. Because I know, it, everyone knows it'll sell. Um, our staff, they, they joke with me all the time. That's just one place we won't go is with the ranch because it's just not Italian. I talked to James Africana. I love the warehouse and I talk to James a lot. And we were talking about it and he just said, you do have to protect your reputation. And especially if someone is hijacking it uh, and something you can't control. I just want to chime in real quick. When it comes to all the apps that are out there and the convenience that comes from delivery services, what's happening is we're saturating our market. And if you didn't write delivery to go on on your budget, on your business plan, then why are you doing it, yeah. right? Because you're trying to adapt to something that you didn't plan for. And it, it, the failure rate in that of not having a plan is going to be extremely high. One of the reasons why I've, I've never gone with a Grubhub or, or DoorDash for, for my restaurants is because I want you to come to my restaurants and I don't want to saturate the convenience of it to where you don't feel like you, you, can, you can just order it at your house. That takes away from what we're trying to do as far as like what we wrote in the plan. I think when you're writing a ghost kitchen concept, then absolutely. Like it, you're, you've, you've created something that was intentional for that market. And I think that's where we always have to kind of pick to, to stay in our lanes as, as restaurant owners is like, what is your concept? And don't lose sight of what your concept was. Brother, you're exactly right. Our business plan had delivery in it and we wanted 10%. Because at 10%, you know, it's a big enough number that it could cover rent or it could, it could do something big. But when we're hanging around 5%, you, you got to start wondering, like, 
yeah, it, it just doesn't make fiscal sense. I have one more question that's a, just a fun one for everyone. There's this new show, The Bear, that everyone's talking about on social media because it's, it's kitchen life, it's restaurants. People are super into it. And a lot of them who've never worked in the industry, I think a lot of people are asking, like, is this real? Oh, yeah, man. I almost talked about it already. Like, it came into my mind a few times. In my opinion, they, they nailed the psyche that it takes to excel when you're young in this business. The little dream sequences where the guy's dreaming about something, then all of a sudden, you know, the ticket machine pops up in his dream. And that stuff is real. I think they, yeah. whoever is writing that has definitely lived it. Matty Matheson's on it. Like, yeah. he's he's a consultant on that project. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It, they've captured it. I watched, I don't know, two episodes, and I was like, I honestly don't want to watch it because... I live this every single day. <laughs> yeah. I, that's why I don't watch cooking shows. I have no desire to to relive something that I see every day in my work life. And I know it's 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 really cool for a lot of young cooks because they're aspiring to chase that lifestyle. Or there's there's sous chefs that are you know kind of still in the middle stages of their career where it's like yeah rock on. It, you know it's like the Kitchen Confidential for us. You yeah. know, when that came out in ninety nine two thousand, it was like did you read it? Yeah. Did you read it? I, I think now as a as an owner, it's kind of like, I don't know, I've been living that lifestyle for, like you said, 30 years. Like, I'm good. I have watched the show, and, and just like you said, it is living it every day. It They've nailed it, uh, in my opinion, better than any other show has yet to date. And there's a lot of, of times where... Um, he has flashbacks to his days at Noma, and it's it's authentic. The consultants that they have on the show have definitely portrayed what we have gone through in the past. Yeah, like the scene with him sitting there with a core container yeah. on a milk crate. That hits on so many levels, such a small detail, but it's like only a cook or a chef knows that filling can fill the can fill the plastic like digging into your into your your chef pants like yeah, yeah, you yeah. know the scene where they go with the online ordering and forget to throttle it you know I live that that was Same that was our, so that was our Mother's Day during the pandemic the thing I related to there is that and I rarely feel this but there's this sense of like man I'm 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 overwhelmed I don't know what to do you have to punch through that to be like not only do I have to survive this but I have yeah. to show my my team how you get through this. You, you problem solve one thing at a time. Okay, let's let's throttle it back. Let's shut it down. Let's fill the orders we have. What do we got to do to replenish our stock? How are we going to get through the next shift? That element, again, being a hopeful person, I hope when people see that show that I feel like there's been a, a little bit of a dip in, a, in desire to be in the industry. I tell everyone that I rode the wave of Food Network. I became a chef as that was becoming popular. I was on Food Network shows when People were watching them and there, and I, there was a culinary schools popping up all over the country, you know, and people wanted to be chefs and, the, and that, that food culture became this kind of uh, shiny thing that people were aspiring to. That's waned off quite a bit. Yeah, they're all TikTok food stylists now. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's safe to say that, and I'm just going to say this and it might make some people mad, but there's a generation that just isn't quite as tough maybe as we were. It's hard to direct someone sometimes. I've heard this lately that I'll just say something direct yeah. to someone coaching them and they're like, I feel attacked. That's what they say to me. I feel attacked. And I'm like, all that I've said to you is it's called a host stand. So you have to stand at the host stand. It's not a host sit. It's a lack of accountability. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you can't go hide in the bathroom. I just need you for four hours to greet guests. And when I say that to them, they literally say like, I feel attacked. I'm going to leave. And I hope that by exposing our industry, like Anthony Bourdain did, uh, it was fantastic. I think then there became a romance around, I think the Food Network and other TV shows put a romance around it, which was great. It brought people to our industry that wanted to learn. Now there's another reality check. You know, pandemic, you know, you're around a lot of people. <laughs> people aren't always nice. People can be kind of mean. We fought against that. I took to social media and, and said we will no longer accept abuse from our guests. We, you will leave. If you complain about your food, we'll fix it. But if you're just here to complain, you're not going to get a free meal. You have to respect our people and respect what we do. Through the pandemic, we survived a near catastrophic breakdown of our entire industry. Not only did we survive it, but we learned that people will not live without it. They were out in the streets, you know, fighting for their haircuts and their nail salons and their restaurants and their bars. We should feel empowered that we, we are in an industry that is very, very, very strong. People want it and they need it. We as independent restaurant owners can carve out a niche and connect to the community better than a chain can. I hope that shows like this will show aspiring culinarians that the reality hasn't changed. It's still a hard job. Yeah. 
to run a restaurant, to own it, to, to be the guy that's got to look at the bills and, you know, fight a better insurance rate and all the stuff that have, comes along with that. You know, signing a lease every five years, that is a skill. Um, that is something that you have to learn and you have to be very, very, very good at because you're going to live that for the next five years. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot more than tweezers and microgreens. Yeah. And I don't know about you guys, but I open my staff up to all that stuff too. If they want to learn how to, if they want to watch me go through payables and figure out how I decide who we're going to order from, um, can we get better product? What is it going to cost? How can we charge for it? What do we charge for it? If you really want to learn how to do the business, you got to learn about the business. And, and hopefully we can teach them that too. Yeah. Well, thanks, gentlemen. Is there anything else really quick in closing any of you want to say before we check out? Thanks for having us on. Yeah, I think it's important, too, is, is anyone who's listening to this, understand, too, that there's so much more than the, the just the perception of what you see posted on social media. A lot of that is just people's greatest hits. And, and I think it's so important to get past that and understand that there's a full thing happening called life. And have a conversation with someone. Get to know them. Don't just assume that that's what their life is actually like. I, I can't yeah. tell you how many of my staff are are shocked about how open I am and approachable I am when, you know, they just see the social media and they're like, dude, that's not what I expected. So um, I think that's a big piece is, you know, get to know the people, start talking again, put the phone down. I, I think the, the last thing that I, I really want people listening to this to know is that everyone who's in this industry is trying hard to, to elevate. I think everyone who runs a, a restaurant has the in, intention to do a better job you know, each day. So I would hope that the community will support initiatives by chefs to try to push the envelope, to try to elevate the scene, to just be open. You know, if you come to your favorite restaurant and you have your favorite item and it's on the menu, you know, it's going to be there next time you come, you know, try the special. I let my staff create specials as well. You know, that's another way to develop a menu is, you know, you, you work on a special, you let your staff develop it, you put it out there for the public. What we were doing currently is we'll run two specials a week. We'll, we'll write it down and we'll put it on a card at the, at the table. And it's kind of like a battle, like which special wins this week. And if it's if it wins, it stays. It's a way to, to kind of keep things fresh while maintaining your menu, which is why people are there. But you find ways to connect with your guests to find out what they like. And it's a way for the staff to feel inspired yeah. that they're not just doing the same thing over and over. So try the special. Go to a restaurant you don't always go to. Support local Go to an independent restaurant as much as you can and just be open to trying new things. And and I think the scene is going to follow if people are more open to trying new things. Yeah. Is the scene in our community, is it lacking because the lack of talent or is it lacking because our community is not open to trying the new things? And I think we, our community is really definitely lacking. They, they all go to Denver when they want to try the new things instead of staying here local. I get a lot of people from Denver coming here. That's awesome. Yeah, we're starting to see that too. Yeah. And, and people, when the <laughs> yep. first people are asking us to go to Denver, you know, why don't you open one of these in Denver? I always look at them and smile and just, you know, I'm so happy that I have a successful business. I'm so happy to be connected with the community. I think that to your to your point, Noah, is it the clientele that maybe needs to be more open, or is it the fact that when you go to a restaurant, as James said, and and they're not trying, you know, no, nobody's really trying. Uh, is that because? They've tried. Yep. You guys can relate to this, right? I've tried. I've, I've put out really good food and no one buys it. I put a special out that I know works, like for my own past. It's a successful dish. I've, I've worked on it for years and still nobody buys it. Yep. You can't let that hurt your ego. You just got to tuck it back in your pocket and then bring it out another time and try it again. Or maybe wait. Maybe it's not time yet. I hope that to your point about the staff, this really hit me from your previous episodes, Matt, is one thing we can all do as restaurateurs is a better job of service a better job of greeting people, making them feel comfortable, getting them their cocktail fast, you know, making sure that someone's touching their table and, and, and doing basic table maintenance. And, and those types of things we can all do. I know it's a lot of training and it's hard to get staff that maybe don't care to get, get them to care. So you got to find incentives and you got to find the right people. And that's an ongoing process. I think if we can all do a better job and just try to wake up every day and do a better job, we're doing our part to elevate the scene. That's all we can really do, right? Perfect closing words. Thanks, Eric. Again, Eric Brenner, Red Gravy, Brother Luck, Four with Brother Luck, and Lucky Dumpling, and Noah Siebenhaller are heading to Shy Mountain Resort. Thank you all for joining us. We'll be back with another episode. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Awesome. Thank you. 
on the next episode. We've got to start thinking about the costs that go into high quality products and resiliency and sustainability. Otherwise, we're just going to be without here in the country. We are going to consume our resources until there is nothing left. We actually make a lot of milk in Colorado. There's a lot of dairy farms in Colorado, but 99% of those dairy farms are all sending their milk to one co-op, the largest co-op in the entire country. I think that if people looked at food the same way that they looked at other recreational activities in Colorado, that would be huge in supporting not only sustainability, but as well as education, food education, and uh, expanding your palate. The more they push this industrial envelope, the more we have an opening to do an alternative. They cannot compete with us on the community level. They cannot compete with us on the flavor level. If we as independents can come together and move to a new level, I think there's a future there. This series is made possible by the generous support of the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective with additional support from downtown Colorado Springs and the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance. Please tell your friends about this podcast. We'd love your feedback, especially if you have a different perspective on anything we've said. You can comment on my social media pages, as well as the CS Indies. Find links in our show notes or search us by name. State of Plate was written and co-produced by me, Matthew Schnipper, in partnership with the Colorado Springs Indie and Dave Gardner, who also did our editing. Art design by Elena Trapp. Digital support by Sean Cassidy. Cheers to Hug Speaks Lauren Hug, as well as Shane Lyons for consulting on the show. And special thanks to publisher and executive editor of the Colorado Springs Indie, Amy Gillentine, for greenlighting this podcast. 